What would happen if we decided to survive more, to love harder? What if we stood up with our synapses and flesh and said, no, no to the rising tides, stood for the many mute mouths of the sea, of the land? What would happen if we used our bodies to bargain for the safety of others, for earth, if we declared a clean night, if we stopped being terrified? Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers Podcast. In this episode, we'll be hearing a few new poems from Ada Limone. Plus, a reading by Rebecca Solnit from her new book, Call Them by Their True Names. So stick around. is the 21st episode of Ampersand, and we've got some new things in store for you listeners out there. That sweet, sweet new theme song for starters. It is sweet, isn't it? (laughs) Yep, we figured it was time to shake things up a bit. And speaking of shaking things up, we have another new addition to the Ampersand lineup. Advertising. Indeed. This episode is brought to you in part by the Authors Guild, which supports working writers and advocates for their rights to fair compensation and free speech. Find out more about member benefits, including website building, educational events and webinars, and free contract reviews by visiting www.authorsguild.org. The cover of the brand new issue of Poets and Writers magazine features poet Ada Limone, whose new collection, The Carrying, is out now from Milkweed Editions. Ada is, quite simply, a poetic superstar. I've loved her work ever since her first book, Lucky Wreck, was published in 2005 and caught my eye for what was then just our second annual debut Poets Roundup. Since then, Ada has published four additional books, including Bright Dead Things, a finalist for the 2015 National Book Award, National Book Critic Circle Award, and Kingsley Tufts Award. It was also named one of the top 10 poetry books of the year by the New York Times. So the thing I love about Ada's poems is that they are not only smart and intellectually and politically engaging, but they also have a pulse. You can see and hear and feel this poet's heart in every line. And in The Carrying, she goes to an even deeper, more emotionally vulnerable space to write about joy and longing and grief and life and death and the body. As she tells Carrie Fountain in our cover interview, quote, this book feels driven by a serious engine. I'm not saying it doesn't have hope. I do have hope too, but much of the poems are written from inside the well with only a glimmer of light coming from the earth's surface. I love that image, writing from inside the well. We reprinted a couple of poems from the carrying in the new issue, including what I think is our first ever full page excerpt because, well, this is a stunning collection and Ada Limon deserves and demands the space. We also asked her to read a few poems from the new book, and she graciously agreed. So here is Ada Limone reading from The Carrying. Dead Stars. 
Out here, there's a bowing even the trees are doing. Winter's icy hand at the back of all of us, black bark, slick yellow leaves, a kind of stillness that feels so mute it's almost in another year. I am a hearth of spiders these days, a nest of trying. We point out the stars that make Orion as we take out the trash, the rolling containers, a song of suburban thunder. It's almost romantic as we adjust the waxy blue recycling bin until you say, man, we should really learn some new constellations. And it's true. We keep forgetting about Antlia, Centaurus, Draco, Lacerta, Hydra, Lyra, Lynx. But mostly we're forgetting we're dead stars too. My mouth is full of dust and I wish to reclaim the rising to lean in the spotlight of streetlight with you toward what's larger within us, toward how we were born. Look, we are not unspectacular things. We've come this far, survived this much. What would happen if we decided to survive more, to love harder? What if we stood up with our synapses and flesh and said, no, no to the rising tides? stood for the many mute mouths of the sea, of the land? What would happen if we used our bodies to bargain for the safety of others, for earth? If we declared a clean night? If we stopped being terrified? If we launched our demands into the sky, made ourselves so big people could point to us with the arrows they make with their minds, rolling their trash bins out? After all of this is over. Wonder Woman Standing at the swell of the muddy Mississippi after the urgent care doctor had just said, well, sometimes shit happens. I fell fast and hard for New Orleans all over again. Pain pills swirled in the purse along with a spell for later. It's taken a while for me to admit I am in a raging battle with my body. A spinal column 35 degrees bent, vertigo that comes and goes like a DC Comics villain nobody can kill. Invisible pain is both a blessing and a curse. You always look so happy, said a stranger once as I shifted to my good side, grinning. But that day... Alone on the riverbank, brass blaring from the steamboat Natchez, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a girl, maybe half my age, dressed for no apparent reason as Wonder Woman. She strutted by in all her strength and glory, invincible, eternal, and when I stood to clap, because who wouldn't have? She bowed and posed like she knew I needed a myth. A woman by a river, indestructible. Carrying. The sky's white with November's teeth, and the air is ash and wood smoke, a flush of color from the dying tree, a cargo train speeding through. And there, that's me. Standing in the wintering grass, watching the dog suffer the cold leaves. I'm not large from this distance. Just a fence post, a hedge of holly. Wider still, beyond the rumble of overpass, mares look for what's left of green in the pastures. 
a few weanlings kick out, and theirs is the same sky, white like a calm flag of surrender pulled taut. A few farms over, there's our mare, her belly barrel round with foal or idea of foal. It's Kentucky, late fall, and any mare worth her salt is carrying the next potential stakes winner. Ours, her coat thicker with the season's muck, leans against the black fence, and this image is heavy within me. How my own body, empty, clean of secrets, knows how to carry her, knows we were all meant for something. What I didn't know before was how horses simply give birth to other horses. Not a baby by any means, not a creature of liminal spaces, but already a four-legged beast hell-bent on walking, scrambling after the mother. A horse gives way to another horse, and then suddenly there are two horses, just like that. That's how I loved you, you off the long train from Red Bank, carrying a coffee as big as your arm, a bag with two computers swinging in it unwieldy at your side. I remember we broke into laughter when we saw each other. What was between us wasn't a fragile thing to be coddled, cooed over. It came out fully formed, ready to run. This next segment is pretty much a dream for me. Uh, we have the one and only Rebecca Solnit, who agreed to read an excerpt from her forthcoming book for us. It's another new collection from Haymarket Books, which is the press that put out her modern classics on feminism and social change, Men Explain Things to Me, The Mother of All Questions, and the recent reprint of Hope in the Dark. The new book, which comes out in September, is Call Them by Their True Names, American Crises and Essays. And it's one of the books featured in page one, this issue. Like much of Rebecca Solnit's writing, it is a searing and super smart call to arms that takes on a range of social and political problems in America, from racism and misogyny to climate change and Donald Trump, all with Solnit's signature wit, humor, honesty, incisive commentary, and beneath it all, a focus on progress and hope. An essayist, activist, and historian, she's the author of 20 books, which she has been publishing since the 1980s without a literary agent, mind you. And I can't actually think of another contemporary writer who I've turned to more in my own writing. Um, I have a very beat-up copy of A Field Guide to Getting Lost that I keep on my desk next to the dictionary like it's a reference manual. Um, and then, of course, Men Explain Things to Me and The Mother of All Questions, which are about feminism and womanhood have been really life-changing for me personally, as I know they have been for a lot of writers and women in general. <laughs> anyway, she's a super important and influential voice of this current moment of ours, and I actually had an out-of-body experience when she emailed to say she'd be happy to do this for us. So without further ado, here is Rebecca Solnit reading from her new book, Call Them By Their True Names. 
This essay is called Armpit Wax. You can take the woman out of the church, but not the church out of the woman. Or so I used to think as my lapsed Catholic mother carried out dramas of temptation, sin, and redemption by means of ice cream and broccoli, or froze with fear at the idea of having made a mistake. She had left behind the rites and the celebrations, but not the anxiety that all mistakes were unforgivable. So many of us believe in imperfection, which ruins everything else, because the perfect is not only the enemy of the good, it's also the enemy of the realistic, the possible, and the fun. My mother's punitive god was the enemy of coyote. Prankish, lecherous, accident-prone coyote and his cousins, then predictable creators of the world in Native American stories, brought me a vision of this realm as never perfect, made through collaboration and squabbling, unfinished and full of possibility for all of us as creators. I came across one of these stories a quarter century ago when the conceptual artist Louis de Soto, whose father was Kawiya, asked me to write about his work. He handed me a photocopy of one version of the Kawiya creation story, which someone had transcribed from the oral tradition. The Kawiya were one of the myriad smallish tribes that inhabited the vast area, now known as California. They lived in the western Mojave Desert, and in the story Lewis sent me, the world begins with darkness and beautiful faraway sounds, sounds such as might have come from distant singers. It continues, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, borrowed from the language of the book of Genesis, but then it diverges. The maternal darkness endeavors to give birth and miscarries twice then bears twin brothers who grow up to quarrel constantly about who was born first. As they fashion the world and all the things in it, the twins argue about whether there should be sickness and death. The brother who wins is worried about overpopulation. The loser abandons earth in a huff, in his hurry leaving behind some of his creations, including coyotes, palm trees, and flies. The remaining brother becomes such a problem lusting after his daughter the moon, giving rattlesnakes poisonous fangs, arming people with weapons they use against each other, that his creatures have to figure out how to kill him. No one is unequivocally good in these stories, starting with the gods. Why live in the San Francisco Bay Area? The Loney people say that Coyote was the first being and the world was created by him and by eagle and by hummingbird, who laughs at Coyote's attempts to figure out just where to impregnate his wife. Coyote's not always this naive. In the Winnebago stories from the Great Lakes, Coyote sends his detachable penis on long, sneaky missions in pursuit of penetration, like some drone from the dream time. As the Californian poet Gary Snyder once put it, quote, old Dr. Coyote is not inclined to make a distinction between good and evil. Instead, he's full of contagious exuberance and great creative force. And in another Californian creation's myth, the gods argue about procreation. One thinks that a man and woman should put a stick between them at night, and it will become a baby when they wake up. The other says there should be a lot of nocturnal embracing and laughing in the baby-making process. These supple stories, unalarmed by improvisation, failure, and sex, remind me of jazz. 
In contrast, the creator in the Old Testament is a tyrannical composer whose score can only be performed one right way. The angel with the flaming sword drove us out of Eden because we talked to snakes and made a bad choice about fruit snacks. Everything that followed was an affliction and a curse. Redemption was required because perfection was the standard by which everything would be measured and by which everything falls short. Nearly everyone under the influence of Genesis, over half of the world's human population, believes in some version of the fall from grace. Even secular stories tend to be structured that way. Conservatives have their Eden before the fall. It usually involves strong fathers and demure women and non-existent queer people. Liberals also have stories about when everything was uncorrupted, about matriarchal communities and paleo diets, and artisanal just about anything from cheese to chairs. But if you give up on grace, you can give up on the fall from grace. You can start enjoying stuff that's only pretty good. According to the Pomo, another Northern California tribe, the world was formed when the creator rolled his armpit wax into a ball. Or according to the Maidu, who live largely in the northern Sierra Nevada mountains, it's made from mud picked out from under the nails of a turtle who'd scraped it up at the bottom of the primordial soup. They're not my property, these old stories, but they're an invitation to reconsider the stories that are. If the perfect is the enemy of the good, maybe imperfection is its friend. So that's it for this episode. Tune in next time. We will be bringing you more author readings and other literary goodness. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your summer. Mm. Yes, it's August somehow. And uh, uh, I guess we'll both be leaving for a little while. Yep, yeah, little little vacation. Publishing is shutting down. We don't really shut down here. No, we don't. We are escaping briefly. I don't think publishing shuts down, but boy, a lot of people leave town. Yeah, it's very hard to get a hold of people yep. in August. Yep. You're going to the beach. I am. Do you have any beach reads? I am very excited. I have uh, what I would say is the mother of all beach reads. Ooh. It's the beach read of all beach reads. Oh, God. What is it? Dun dun. <laughs> dun dun. Jaws. Yes. So for the last, like, I would say five or six years, I have looked at every bookstore that I've been to. Um, for a copy of Jaws, and, and a very specific copy of Jaws. I haven't seen any copies of Jaws at any bookstore I've been to, mm-hmm. which is weird, I think. Yeah, I don't see that anywhere either. No. Um, but I wanted a sort of the mass market, you know, mm-hmm. paperback from when I was a kid, because yeah. I had that book when I was a kid, and um, I just had never been able to find it. So finally, you know, with this trip upcoming, I went on Powell's.com uh, and found... What I thought was going to be the right copy, but they didn't have a little image of it. So uh-huh. I ordered it. It was like the 1976 version of, okay. of Jaws. I didn't want the movie tie-in. Right. I didn't necessarily need the first edition. I just wanted the, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it arrived, and it was exactly the one I wanted. Oh, yes. Which was, you know, I think the bio for Peter Benchley said that he was working on the screenplay or something oh, like that. Oh, man. 
So I am excited to read that. Okay. Good. Um, Perfect to be read. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to let my kids read it, I don't think. Probably a good idea. Uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoy them enjoying the water, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to mm-hmm. introduce them to Jaws. But Yeah, I recently rewatched the movie, and man, it is scary. Yeah, it, it holds up. It, I've never read the book, actually. Yeah. Maybe this is the summer to do it. Maybe. So that's what I'm going to read. All right. How about you? I don't really have any beach reads on the agenda. I'm finishing up uh, Chelsea Johnson's Stray City right now, which mm-hmm. I, I definitely wouldn't call a beach read. It takes place in Portland mm-hmm. um, in the 90s, which, I mean, I guess that's on the coast. But uh, I also just finished Idiophone by Amy Fusselman, which is a book-length essay. Also not a beach read, but uh, really good. I also really like the book-length essays form. I'm really interested in that right now. But... Um, yeah, no beach reads on the agenda, although I would really like one. I am not going to the beach, <laughs> but I could use one <laughs> mentally and emotionally. Right. So if anyone has any recommendations, that would be great. That's exciting. You, you're, you, the possibilities are endless. Mm. You're an open book. I am an open book. I don't know what the story is going to be yet. Yeah, you, there's no writing in that book yet, <laughs> <laughs> but there will be. Yes. So if anybody has any suggestions, send us an email, ampersand at pw.org. Hashtag Beach Reads. And tune in next time to Ampersand, the Poets and Writers Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino. Music for this episode was provided by Yacht, Poddington Bear, and The Pleasure Kills. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode at pw.org forward slash ampersand. Interested in advertising on a future episode? Email us at ampersand at pw.org. <laughs>